Hello everyone and welcome to the Loopcast. So today we have a great show that's very timely and we're going to be discussing countering violent extremism. So all things aka the acronym CVE and I'm really excited to have Seamus Hughes on the show. We've been wanting to have him on for a while and we finally have got him so thank you so much for coming on the show Seamus. Yes, thank you for having me. And for our listeners that might not know who Seamus is, which um, I'm sure you do, but I will give you a little background. Seamus is the Deputy Director of the Program on Extremism at George Washington University's Center for Cyber and Homeland Security. He was previously at the National Counterterrorism Center and served as a lead staffer for the U.S. government's efforts to implement the national CVE strategy, and he also served as the Senior Counterterrorism Advisor for the U.S. Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. So he's had a long history in this topic and perfect guest. So Seamus, to start off with, why don't you just quickly give a little background on what CVE is for those who might not know. Sure. So um, counterviolent extremism is the, the general idea of uh, left of boom. You know, what can you do to prevent someone from either crossing a, a legal line and, and committing an illegal act or crossing and doing a, a violent act? So in 2011, um, the administration released their, um, their strategy empowering local partners uh, to prevent violent extremism in the U.S., which is a big mouthful of a strategy document. Um, but essentially outlined roles and responsibilities for um, four different agencies, uh, DHS, FBI, DOJ, and NCTC, where I used to work. Uh, and, and the strategy was threefold. First is, you know, we got to get better at understanding the threat. So we had examples of pretty bad and bigoted training in the past. Um, so the administration got together and said, let's figure this out and let's get good information to state and locals. Um, the second part was we need to do better when it comes to community engagement. So let's enhance engagement with communities that are being targeted by al-Qaeda or ISIS for radicalization, um, whose messages are being directed towards them. And then the last part, and I think admittedly is, is the weakest of the strategy right now, is uh, counter the uh, the propaganda while embracing our ideals. Uh, and I think that's the part where they really kind of struggled on. And so for a lot of people that keep track of what's going on in headlines, news, uh, discussions out there, countering violent extremism is, is a very hot topic, especially with current events, even past events, and with the rise of the Islamic State, ISIS, ISIL. George Washington just produced this great report, ISIS in America, from Retreats to Raqqa, which we'll definitely post a link so our listeners can read it over as well. But in that report, looking at the current situation, you mentioned that 71 individuals have been charged with ISIS-related activities since March of 2014. 56 have been arrested in 2015 alone, which is a recorded number of terrorism-related arrests since 9-11. And that says a lot, and it says a lot with this ideology that's out there. So why don't we look at this a bit? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the question, I guess, then becomes, you know, what are we looking at in terms of numbers and, and why are we there? Is that what you're looking for? Yes, definitely. Yeah, so in terms of numbers, I think it's important to put in context. It is 56 arrests this year is unprecedented when it comes to the U.S. context. So we've never seen that number of arrests. Um, but it pales in comparison to our you know, European partners and, and the numbers they've been dealing with when it comes to ISIS-related radicalization and recruitment. 
Um, so I, I, I always want to preference with our numbers are very small, comparatively speaking, uh, but they're very large when you look at you know the last five or six years in, in homegrown terrorism. Um, so the question then becomes, you know, why is this? And I think there's a, essentially twofold reason, although there's a variety of other ones. The first one is the fact that ISIS has its own, you know, state and a place to go uh, with a relatively, depending on the area, functioning government. Um, people are drawn to that, and I think we can't discount uh, the physical space there and and the want to be part of that. And then the second part is, and we touched a little bit of that on the report, is there is uh, they are very adept at using social media to to essentially push propaganda and and recruit followers, and they've done it quite well on that. So I think there's that aspect too. Um, but I don't want to down I don't want to you know overhype social media, and I and I'm, I worry sometimes when we talk about ISIS that we say that if it wasn't for the internet we wouldn't have um, people going to join terrorist groups. I, I just don't think that's true. And we saw a number of cases in the U.S. where relationships mattered, um, where the first wave of, of individuals that left from Minneapolis uh, and went to Syria then called back their friends and said, you know, come come join us, and their friends they knew from the neighborhood. So there's a in-person dynamic that matters. Um, and we saw a, a series of different cases around the country where, where at the end of the day, um, you're more likely to be interested and involved if you actually know someone in the physical space, where it's comes interesting when you look at the online environment is, um, you know, if you're uh, a young woman from, you know, Aurora, Colorado, um, like Shannon Conley, you just, you need, if you're looking for a sense of belonging, you're looking for someone to glob onto, uh, and you're not going to find like-minded people for the most part um, in that small town, so you're going to reach out online. And that's where I think it's, it's an interesting dynamic. And when looking at the report and what you were talking about just earlier about the 56 that have been arrested in 2015 alone, could you say that those numbers, at least here for the U.S., show an increase in extreme ideology? And is ISIS part of this? I mean, we have other groups. We have al-Qaeda, al-Shabaab. I mean, I could go on and on. We have domestic extremist groups as well. So when you look at extreme ideology, it can fall into a lot of factors. But of course, this report focuses on ISIS. Yeah. But can you say that there's a rise in this radical extreme ideology here in the States? You know what? I, I tend to believe there's a rise, uh, but I think it's probably more important to say there's a there's a rise in mobilization. And, and by that, I mean, um, while you may still have this, it's a very small subset and subculture here in the U.S., much smaller, again, from our European partners, um, but people are willing to essentially travel and, and make decisions to go at a, at a higher clip than they were in the past. Uh, so I think mobilization, at, at the very least, has, has increased, and we've seen that. Uh, and then I, I think it's fair to also talk about you know, all forms of extremism. At the program on extremism, we, looked, we look at not only Islamist extremism, but you know, far right, sovereign citizen, that kind of place. Um, so we'll touch on that in the coming reports, too. Fantastic. I look forward to reading those. So we mentioned the online world and the propaganda out there, and, and there's a big debate of how much it influences people to come to a certain view. One thing that I find very important when looking at extremism and certain cases is the idea of an online echo chamber, a group that reiterates a thought or helps promote it more or helps validate it for someone. How much does this play in the idea of attacks and even inspired attacks and also the motivation to maybe travel to Syria to join a group. Yeah. So 
I think it's, it plays a very relevant role. Uh, and we, we, for the report, we looked at 300 uh, accounts of people we believe to be American ISIS uh, sympathizers to get a sense of the scene. And um, we did describe it as an echo chamber. It's something that the Assistant Attorney General, John Carlin, has also used. Um, but you're right. It's, you're not hearing dissenting voices. Um, so you're only hearing what you want to hear. It's similar to you know your friend on Facebook who only wants to uh, to read certain news uh, magazines and certain uh, news clips and, and doesn't hear anybody else from anybody anything else that would you know disagree with them. It's a similar dynamic when you look on the online space. Um, kind of everyone generally knows each other. There's a sense of of you know brotherhood or sisterhood on these type of things. And it runs the spectrum between um, the violent images that are shared to the you know, boringly benign banter uh, of everyday life. Uh, and I, I just thought it was a fascinating kind of look into it over a six-month period. It kind of reminds me of you know, any normal or any other website or, or, or places like that, like Reddit or, uh, or, or things like that, where you know, everyone kind of has a sense of what the culture is. You know, everyone can use certain terms and phrases. There's inside jokes. There's there's different dynamics there. It's 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 a similar thing that you would see in other online communities, but just with a dangerous bend. Taking the discussion more to CVE here in America, in 2011, as you mentioned, the U.S. formally launched a CVE strategy, and I know that you've been very much on the ground with this during your career. So I was wondering if we could look at the strategy and what it consists of, how it's been implemented, and the likes. Yep. Um, so like I mentioned, they released a strategy in 2011 with the three main goals. The first one is to understand the threat better. The second one to enhance engagement with communities. And the third one is to counter the propaganda. Shortly after that, they released an implementation plan, uh, and by they, I mean the administration released an implementation plan, which essentially gave um, DHS, DOJ, FBI, NCTC the co-leads on these type of things. Um, so what we termed essentially uh, when I was in government as the group of four, and the group of four would then you know meet week- weekly their staffs and things like that, and essentially um, scope out what everyone would do, you know. DOJ has certain authorities. They have U.S. attorneys in the field in, in 94 different um, U.S. attorney offices around the country. So they're the, essentially the main federal and partner in the field. But DHS also has equities. They have um, civil rights and civil liberties officers and roundtables around the country. Um, NCTC also has a cadre of, of CVE officers um, who do, and what I did was essentially community engagement when it comes to countering violent extremism. Um, and maybe I can give a few examples of that, or we can touch on it a little bit later, um, whatever you prefer. With the Boston bombings, we saw a renewed effort in the strategy of CVE, and I know that there's some pilot programs going on here in the States. I think there's about three that are the main ones, uh, Los Angeles, Minnesota, and Boston. Maybe we could look at those and how this new strategy and new approach, whether it's similar or differs in each region and why. Yeah, I, I think the reason why they decided to go to a pilot programs is I think there was a recognition both inside, inside and, and outside of government that um, we needed to focus a little bit. Uh, and the reason they picked those those three cities was essentially um, threefold. The first one was, you know, Los Angeles has a pretty good history of community engagement. Um, they have a pretty good track record of that. Uh, LAPD's uh, Deputy Chief Chief Downing is really good at these type of things and, and actually truly believes that it's an important aspect of a community-oriented policing. 
Uh, and then Minnesota, I think it was very clear why, why they were picked in, in 2007 to 2009. You had about two dozen individuals who left and, and joined Al-Shabaab in Somalia. Um, so they had already been kind of grappling with this idea of prevention. So the idea was, let's, let's, see, let's try to add on to what they're working on. Uh, and then I, Boston, I think it's, it's pretty clear when, when you look at the Boston Marathon bombing, I think there was a recognition that we should try something, at least in Boston. And we had a U.S. attorney there, Carmen Ortiz, uh, who again intuitively gets CVE, so that helps when you look at these type of things. The question then becomes, you know, each one of them released a strategy. They're all available on their website. Um, the question then becomes implementation. Um, both can you get community partners to get on board on this, and CVE is a bit of a loaded term in some sections of Muslim American communities. And then the other question is, can you actually get resources to it? Uh, I think the jury's still out on both of those points. And are those two of the major challenges facing CVE here in the states? Then, yeah, I think it's a. There's two issues with, with kind of like extremism domestically. Um, internationally, it's a whole different beast. But domestically, the the issue is one um, a branding issue. I don't think the the government and our and our partners have done a pretty good job. They haven't done a, a particularly good job at explaining what counter-violent extremism is. So when I was um, doing this type of work. If I went to a mosque or community center and said, you know, I'm Seamus Hughes, I'm from the intelligence community, and I want to talk to you about terrorism, uh, I would usually uh, be – everyone would politely nod, and then no one would listen to me. But if I went – and this happened on a regular basis if – I, if I went to a mosque or community center, say, after the three girls from Denver, these three young girls under the age of 18 all jumped on a plane to join ISIS um, – and they got turned around in Frankfurt, the imam calls me and says, Seamus, can you come talk to my congregation about, you know, why people would decide to do this? My pitch when I went to the to the mosque um, was essentially, my name is Seamus Hughes, and I'm here to safeguard your kids, and I need your help in order to save them. And I think that, that's, that type of framing matters. Uh, and when it becomes a human aspect of the story, I think, I think you're more likely to get people to, to understand. Um, because when we talk about 250 Americans who have attempted to or have traveled to Syria and Iraq, that is also, we, we tend to forget that's also 250 people, you know, with fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, friends uh, who've lost uh, a loved one. Now, you got to put it in context, they've joined a terrorist group, so there's that dynamic and you can't be too sympathetic. Um, but there is a human aspect to this that I don't think we've, we've essentially touched on. Uh, and, and my, why I believe CV is important is that if you don't, if you don't try the prevention end, then your only option is is if you're a parent, your only option is to do nothing and hope it's a phase, or call the FBI and then you know potentially he's arrested or he or she is arrested for material support to terrorism. And I don't think that's I don't think that's fair both from a policy or a legal aspect, and I don't think that's fair from a moral aspect. You know, as a father, I just I just think there should be other options for people that are concerned about their loved ones. Um, and I don't think we've cracked that that nut. And on that topic, it seems like, as you've mentioned, the U.S. CV strategy still has a, I guess what you could call a hard intervention option. As you said, your your parents turn you in for potentially looking like you might be joining a group that um, is going to be up to no good. So what are your thoughts on this idea of a hard intervention, which usually equals to incarceration? Um very quickly versus the idea of a soft intervention to help de-radicalize individuals. I don't think it's an either-or proposition. 
Um, so I am not of the belief that anyone who joins a terrorist organization, we should you know hold their hand and, and tell them to come back in the fold. There's going to be a subset of people that you should arrest and take down, uh, and you should put away for a considerable amount of time because they've you know crossed the legal threshold, or they you know just are not reachable, or they've done something that warrants an arrest. Uh, so let's put that. I, I think there is a role for the use of of informants and and the FBI's. CT tech tactics in certain cases, and we saw that bear out in, in the last few weeks. Um, but I also think there's a subset of people that are essentially reachable. Um, when you look at back of the cases, every one of for the vast majority of them, uh, a bystander saw something that was concerning, usually a loved one or a family member, um, but they didn't know what they were seeing and, and they didn't know what to do about it. Uh, and I think I think there's a way to essentially set up, similar to our European partners, you know, some sort of intervention programs with the proper civil rights and civil liberties guidelines to um, be able to, to redirect people um, to a safer spot. Again, I, I put this in a in a human context. So so I spent a good amount of time, and I still do, talking to family members of individuals that join terrorist organizations. Um, and so I was in. Minneapolis in 2009 in the snow, meeting with um, mothers of uh, of people that of, of five individuals who had joined Al Shabaab, and, and you know they're telling me their story, you know, in the basement of the the apartment buildings uh, of their sons, and you know desperately asking me to save their kids. They've been kidnapped and brainwashed. Um, it, it becomes more real when you talk about it in that context, and it becomes um, something that you want to to be able to essentially fix if you can. Um, but once they get on that plane, there's not really much you can do. So I think it's incumbent on us to, to provide an alternative to prosecution wherever possible. Uh, and then let's put it aside, put aside the, the legal and moral issues of that. I also think just from a resource standpoint, you have to do it. Um, if the FBI says they have 900 active investigations in all 50 states, you just honestly, you don't have enough FBI agents to run surveillance on that kind of, that kind of number. Even if they're only running surveillance on a small percentage, you, you just, you don't have two FBI agents in a van running eight-hour shifts um, for a considerable amount of time. So I, I think from a resource perspective, you should you should expand the number of tools that you have in the toolbox. Uh, and, then, and then the other issue, I think, is the why I think interventions are important is uh, that the demographic tends to be younger. It's trending younger. So of the cases we looked at for the report, you know, the average age was 26, but one-third of them were 21 years or younger. Um, there was a number of minors in this in this study, uh, a concerning number of minors. Again, putting it in perspective of actual larger numbers, but a concerning number of minors. And you're you're not going to arrest a 15 year old for material support. Uh, I mean, I guess you could in, in some scenarios, but trying to get that through the national security branch at DOJ, it's it's very unlikely. So then it leaves you with you know no options besides you know, knocking on the door and saying, "I'm the FBI, please knock it off, kid." Hoping it's a phase, or you know just watching them until they turn 18. And I don't think a three-year review of a 15-year-old is a good use of resources in, in most, in all cases. On that point, I, I don't remember where I read it. It was a recent article, and it was discussing the idea of preventing radical extremism um, or preventing young people from going down that path. And, and they were saying that aside from the community, the family members, maybe religious group members, that it's the friends of these individuals that are maybe the first point of contact to realize that something's wrong. And I was wondering if, in your opinion, in your experience, 
has the U.S. government looked at this option of working with young people to prevent young people, which is the big demographic of individuals taking this path, have they thought of using or creating a youth program potentially? Yeah, nothing of, of, of real substance. There is something called um, Peer-to-Peer, which is um, an organization that partners up with about 25 universities, both domestically and internationally, and essentially gives the, the semester-long project to one class in each university uh, to figure out how to counter ISIS. And so you have these 19, 20, 21-year-old um, individuals who are essentially spending the semester trying to figure out how to counter the narrative. And I think that's kind of a promising model. You know, some of them are not going to be great, and some of them are going to be actually atrocious. Um, but there may be something good that comes out of that 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 you could try on a larger scale. I'm a big believer of trial and error, uh, and I think I think that countering violent extremism programs, you know, just by their very nature, are difficult to implement and difficult to do. Um, so you're going to have some mistakes, and and luckily, I think we have a number of examples from. Our European partners, particularly in the UK, where you can see where they made where things weren't well, and then where you, they made mistakes, and you can try to avoid those mistakes uh, here. And I don't think we've we've properly you know figured that out yet. And actually, elaborating on that, I see sometimes somewhat of a what I'll call cookie cutter method to CVE programs. Yeah. And you know, various methods, if I'm going to make an analogy, various methods um, in programs might not necessarily click with all individuals. And I kind of liken it to an idea of maybe recovering from an addiction. So certain methods that counter addiction for one individual might do wonders where another individual, it just doesn't. And so considering this, how can a more individualized, tailored CVE system be devised that really looks at each specific individual because people are different. Different things click with them, other things don't. So you can't really just create a program that, oh, they go through all the steps and they're done and they're deprogrammed from this mind thinking. So is that even possible to create something that's individualized in looking at such big numbers that you were mentioning? Yeah, actually, I think the numbers are actually manageable. Uh, and I think you can do tailored approach. Just like you don't have a step-by-step process for radicalization, it's not linear and, and it's you know highly individualized and highly complicated. You don't have a step-by-step um, process for essentially disengagement or, or de-radicalization. So far as de-radicalization, um, so yes, it, it needs to be tailored individually. And, and I think we tend to think that oh well, we need to bring a religious leader in if we're concerned about ISIS recruitment and radicalization. I, I find that's less the case, and it, it has. Each person is different, and the grievance is different. So it may more likely to be someone that's you know a trusted mentor and things like that, or more likely to be successful on these things. In terms of how do you do this, I think there's a role for the federal government to essentially set standards or set um, base guidelines on these type of things, and says, okay, here are the right and left latitudes when it comes to doing tailored approaches to CVE. Um, here's what you should do. Here's what you shouldn't do, and 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 things like that. I also think there's a role for um, the Department of Justice to provide um, some level of legal assurances for people. So if you're uh, someone who decides, you know, I've watched, you know, my loved one go down a wrong trajectory and I want to bring him back in the fold, and then unfortunately your loved one goes in and, and commits a violent act, you're then, you know, possibly open yourself up to civil liability. 
And I think we need to provide some sort of assurances that if you're a good-hearted person who's trying to do the right thing, you know, we're not going to um, unduly affect you. Uh, and I also think it also opens people up to the potential to having to testify in front of, um, you know, a, a court proceeding too. I, so I think there's a whole host of legal issues there we need to figure out. There's also a whole host of uh, Privacy Act uh, concerns. You know, a, a good number of the individuals we looked at have mental health um, mental health issues. I mean, as Brian um, Jenkins says, terrorism doesn't a- attract the well-adjusted. So I, I think there's a role um, for the federal government to provide some way to transfer that information that's keeping within the law. Uh, and then the last part I think there's a role for is um, the sharing of information from the federal government to local trusted partners. Um, it, so if you have a case open on an individual, you know, the vast majority of that's going to be classified. So how to, what's the mechanisms to get that declassified, to be able to share it, to be something that you can close a case by an intervention, then an arrest? I heard a great quote that I think really fits this, and I just wanted your thoughts on it. And it's, it takes a network to defeat a network. And it seems like what you're saying describes that. Yeah, I... I I don't think there's going to be a silver bullet when it comes to counter-violent extremism. Uh, in fact, I think quite the opposite. Um, I think you need to have as many possible avenues and, and attempts as, as humanly possible um, because not one answer is going to be the way to do it. Um, and you're right, it is going to be a, a bit of a network. You know, There's a role for federal government in these type of things. There's also a role for the local officials. Um, and there's going to be parts where... Um, Community partners, depending on which which um, form of extremism you focus on, community partners are going to be particularly relevant. So there, it's not a good idea for um, a intelligence officer or a DHS official to be de- debating the finer points of uh, religious text. That's ridiculous on its face, and it, it brings up a number of both free speech and also establishment clause issues. Um, but there may be a role for community partners for that type of thing. So we got to figure out the, the the lines for each person. Um, and I also would note in terms of, of counter-violent extremism, I don't think we've done a, a good enough job on transparency. Uh, and by that I mean that we haven't kind of explained what the programs look like, um, what the actual um, spectrum of programs would be. And I, I don't think we've done a good enough job reaching out to partners on these type of things. The idea of developing a counter-argumentation, which would be composed of political counter-narratives and a religious counter-theology, has been described as a key process to CVE. How much of a challenge is this, especially when considering the political atmosphere that we are in today, increased airstrikes in Syria, and I'm not going to name names, but I'm sure everyone knows who I'm mentioning, a major political candidate making anti-Muslim rhetoric remarks, such as the establishment of a U.S. Muslim database, internment camps, and the list goes on and on. I mean, to me, this is very counterproductive in the effort of combating extremism ideology when you have so much negative thoughts out there right in the media getting a lot of attention and not much being said about it. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, it doesn't make the job of, of people who want to do prevention or, or countering uh, any easier. Um, you know, we looked at, again, we looked at the accounts of ISIS supporters online, and there's clearly a world narrative of 
of us versus them, a black and white that, you know, you can't be, like Anwar Laki said, you can't be American and Muslim, um, that they're, they're opposed uh, to that. So when you see presidential candidates or politicians or general leaders um, pushing that same narrative, I think it's, it's concerning um, both from a recruitment narrative but also just you know, on a human aspect is just morally reprehensible. Um, and then the other question is you know, what happens in um, – I think it's right. What happens in Raqqa is going to determine what happens here for our ISIS sympathizers. Uh, if ISIS, you know, continues the status quo, then we're probably going to have the same, we're, we're probably going to have still a number of people that are interested and drawn to it. Uh, if they start retreating, if, if it becomes harder and harder to travel, uh, if the narrative shifts a little bit more, I think you'll see again, a, a drop in the numbers, at least in the domestic cases. I mean, it's interesting to note with all of the rhetoric that's been going on in the media, especially recently, that, you know, I think it's about 94% from the FBI database of violent crimes, the terrorism type crimes are not perpetrated by whether it's Muslim Americans, Middle Eastern Americans. So the thoughts out there are, when you look at the facts, are quite unfounded, unfortunately. It's, it's a fear-based rhetoric going on. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, go, go for it. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I absolutely agree with you, uh, and I, you know, the program extremism. We are worried about all forms of extremism, uh, and I think you should be worried about the Nadal Hassans of the world as much as you're worried about the Dylan Roofs of the world. And I think it's important to put that in context. Um, but I also don't want to negate um, the numbers. I mean, 250 Americans is, is concerning. It, again, it's not concerning when you look at the, the larger population size. It's just statistically insignificant, but it's still 250 Americans, and it's still the highest number we've, we've dealt with. Uh, in the last 15 years. So you got to kind of weigh these type of things. Um, so I, I think the numbers are manageable to the point where you can do a tailored approach without, you know, unduly uh, painting a whole subset of, of Muslim Americans and Americans writ large who are practicing their faith, faith um, perfectly fine like everyone else that, that has done it before. Moving the discussion on to what happens after CVE, we always tend to focus on the countering side of this topic. But what about the aftermath? What happens to individuals that have successfully gone through some of the programs out there? Yeah, uh, we don't have a very good good example in the States. Um, you have a number of essentially formers in um, the UK and Germany and places like that where you know they've essentially seen the light and they are their ways and they've become spokesmen to try to prevent the next uh, type of people from joining that. The, the question of, you know, what do you do, I think it's an important one that we haven't touched on is we arrested a number of people for material support for terrorism or gun charges post 9-11, and uh, a number of those people are getting out or have gotten out. So at least 25 individuals are, have been arrested for terrorism charges and are now you know, out free. Another 32 or so will be out in the next five years, and I don't think we've wrapped our head around um, what to do, if anything, with, with those individuals. Some of them would you know, still hold radical views, and some may uh, have changed their minds. And if they've changed their minds, then there's a, there's a very par- powerful narrative when it comes to formers that we haven't harnessed in the U.S. We haven't figured out how to do that, um, but our European partners have. So I think that's an important dynamic there. And why do you think that's the case? Is the government 
afraid to use these people as spokespeople or what's the glitch here? Yeah, I, I think it depends. The problem is it's very um, person focused. So you have to have the exact right person. Um, you have to we, – we talked about this a little bit in the, on, in the, in the ISIS report, um, the role of formers in these type of things. And we advocate for um, Department of Justice to provide uh, limited immunity in some select cases um, for people that have been either disenfranchised with what they saw in Syria and Iraq or you know had a change of heart in the airport and could kind of tell their story. Now the problem is you got to find the exact right person. You, you know, you clearly don't want someone who was engaged um, in attacks in Syria to then be your former here. I, I just don't think that works, both from you know a personal level and also just a a political level. Um, so it, it takes only a very select person. So I, I think they're still looking for it as as am I. There's a lot of reports and research that's been done on radicalization in prisons. Prisons have always been a hotbed of radicalization. So incarcerating individuals that have um, looked like they're supporting terrorism, whatever the case might be, how does that play into countering violent extremism in the sense that you are putting a lot of these people in prisons where potentially it's even more of a hotbed to uh, further these views and make them even stronger. Yeah, I'm not sure I buy the the full argument on on prison radicalization. I know there's been a number of studies on that, um, and I know that you know when you're in this type of environment, you know it's essentially an echo chamber, like we talked about online. It's similar to an echo chamber in prison, uh, but of the individuals who get out, you don't necessarily see that type of fervor. You know, they have it in prison, but not necessarily out. I'm not sure. I'm not sure where I stand on in terms of you know prison radicalization and things like that. I think it does allow you um, the ability to um, try out new things um, there that you wouldn't be able to um, on the outside just because of supervised release and, and things like that. And going back to my addiction analogy, it's something that is always a long-term process. Someone's always going to have to reprogram themselves from past thinking, past actions. And someone that may have gone through a countering violent extremism program, you know, a mindset is really hard to get rid of, whatever it might be. So is this an ongoing process? Is, is it something that there needs to be whether it's a process of checking up on the individual every couple of months to see if they're still on that same track. I mean, how does that work since it is, it's a completely regrouping of your thoughts and your mindset. Yeah. It's a, it's an, radicalization is a, a highly individualized process. Like you mentioned. So each person is going to be different. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that um, you can't just, it's not like somebody switch, uh, uh, switch um, changes in someone's head and they say, okay, now I'm good. Um, it's going to be an ongoing process, and I, and I think it's incumbent on the the trusted mentor or whoever's doing that type of uh, engagement or intervention to um, understand that the safety net's going to have to be there for a, at least a while. So we always like to give our listeners and our guests the opportunity to um, hear our guests have a final thought or maybe there's something we might not have touched on in the conversation. And so when we have time, we like to do that. So I would like to hand over the floor to you. Maybe there's something that you would like to get out there that we haven't discussed yet. 
I think we touched on a number of things. I, listen, I understand counting value extremism is, is a loaded term, both you know, within Q, community partners and also in the public writ large. Um, I tend to be the one that says that uh, it's a, inherently a good idea if, it, if it's implemented right. Uh, and, and I get why people would be concerned about it, um, but the alternative, uh, frankly, is is worse. Uh, the alternative of doing nothing or you know arresting your way out of it is concerning to me, and I think it's it, it's incumbent on on us um, as a society to provide some other um, alternatives, if if at all possible. And I think what we're seeing now is essentially the the five stages of CBE uh, guilt. You know, you have denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and then acceptance. And I think we're somewhere in between. Uh, anger and bargaining when it comes to actually implementing implementing CVE. Um, the question is, how do we get to acceptance? Um, because I think we're going to have to get there just by the sheer numbers. I think for me, the the key phrase in there is implementing CVE right. In your mind, what would be the the best implementation of this? Yeah, that's the other thing. If you implement countermining streams and programs wrong, you've you've then uh, opened yourself up not only to criticism but also could have the adverse effect. Um, so, uh, you know, Will McCants has a view on, on CVE that I agree with, which is do no harm, um, and I think that's an important aspect when it comes to CVE. Uh, in terms of what do you do, it, how do you do it right? I would I would get away or I would step away from broad based community engagement when it comes to these issues. Um, it's important, you know, to to explain what your federal government does and 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 do, you know, somewhat large town halls. But they're not going to be your bread and butter when it comes to CVE. You're not going to be able to get funding on it. People can't like, wrap their head around, you know, how you changed the minds of 250 people in a room because it's very hard to measure that kind of stuff. I think it's important instead then to move over to more tailored, um, you know, focused programs on individuals. Um, that are that you may be concerned about because um, then you can at least at least try to measure that type of success. And being in the field, do you see that tending to go in that direction? Then I think you're seeing a slow shift. So we we have a number of um, you know there's an organization in Montgomery County, Maryland that's that's trying out violence prevention and, and interventions. Uh, word um, that they're in the early stages of, but they've been doing pretty good work on that. Uh, you also see ad hoc um, NGOs around the country who want to get into this space. Um, they want they they recognize there's a problem and they want to be be part of the solution, um, but they're not provided any resources. They're doing it on a shoestring budget, and they have you know full time jobs, and this is just you know something they feel um, that they need to do. So I I think we're going to be moving into a direction of, of interventions um, because of the number of people that are, are joining groups or trying to join groups like ISIS, you, you can't arrest your way out of it. And also because uh, it makes sense and it's easier to essentially explain to, you know, congressional authorized and appropriators about how the money's being spent. Well, I think that's a fantastic way to end the show. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Seamus, and giving us your expertise on this very interesting and very important topic. Thank you.